0: That's the purpose of reset. We would have a life-changing experience, a connection, an encounter with God. We come to Job, another person in the Bible, synonymous with wisdom and patience and victory. By looking at this narrative, how does it change me? Today. Today. Today.
1: Today with Jeff
0: Vines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher.
1: Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Do certain areas of your life need a reset? This week we're revisiting some older messages from Pastor Jeff from his reset series. If you've missed any, you can find them all wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's message is about resetting our approach to life. Let's begin with Pastor Jeff as he looks at the story of Job in the Bible from Job, chapters 38 to 41.
0: Have you ever thought about what it would be like to meet God, come face to face with God, to wrestle with the angel of the Lord like Jacob, to witness the power and the presence of God out of a burning bush like Moses, to be questioned about everything you thought to be true previously, by God incarnate through Christ, one-on-one meeting, or maybe even like Isaiah, who came into contact with God, a close encounter, and dropped to his knees and said, woe is me, I am undone. When you go through the Bible and you read narratives of people who had this one-on-one experience with God, it was not one of uh, ooey-gooey type of, a mystical moment where you just felt all good inside. Now, that would come later. But in the beginning, when you met God, there was sheer terror, power. And then there was a reset of your life. Maybe for the first time in your life, after having met God in this way, you realized that you had not been seeing the world clearly or God clearly or your life clearly. And now you push the reset button and everything changes. And that's what we hope to accomplish in this series, in the midst of political and social unrest, that we would be able to pause, to take a moment, to reset our lives, to go against the definition of insanity by doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, somehow by coming into contact with the omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, omnipotent, all-powerful God that by having an encounter with him, we would reset our lives and we would pursue different things now, that we would think in a different way, that we would see our lives, we would see God, we would see the world through his eyes and everything would change. That's the point. That's the purpose of reset, that we would have a life-changing experience, a connection, an encounter with God. And so now we come to Job, another person in the Bible Whose name uh, has been synonymous with wisdom and patience and victory, we would look at his life and we would ask the question again by looking at this narrative, how does it change me? Most of you know the story of Job. His life has fallen apart. Things haven't gone well. He's angry. He's frustrated. Part of the reason is, is in his mind, we're even told this in Job 1.1, that he has lived a righteous and blameless life. And so in his mind, he's done his part, but God is not living up to his. So as we come to the encounter where Job encounters God, the narrative tells us that Job demands three things, okay? Number one, Job demands an explanation. He wants God to tell him the reason his life is going this direction. He basically says to God through 38 chapters, I can endure what you're asking me to endure God if you just tell me why it's happening. He asked for an explanation and second, he asked for vindication, justification. He says, God, I want you to justify me. I want to be vindicated before my friends. I want them to know that I'm not suffering the way I'm suffering because of something that I did to deserve. I need vindication. And third, he asked for representation. He said, God, I want an audience with you. I want my day in court. I want to plead my cause, my case, and I want an explanation given. And so we come to chapter 38 in the book of Job and 38 through 41, which is near the end of the book, God does show up. And when God shows up, he shows up in a hurricane, a whirlwind. Let me read it to you. I'm in Job 1 through three. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. You know, when I was growing up in Tennessee, we had a dog named King. We named him King because he looked like a lion. He was a full-bred collie. And this dog, for some reason, loved to sit behind the fence and wait for cars to pass the road in front of our home. And then he would take a 90 degree turn angle and chase the car for about 200 yards and then come back to the house and hide behind the fence again and wait for the next car. We had a neighbor that lived in our community that just got really tired of our dog chasing his car. And so one summer day in July, he pulls out of his driveway. Our dog sees him pull out of the driveway, watches him all the way until he arrives at the front of our house. He sprints out, does our dog, chases this car for about 100 yards, and our neighbor just decides to stop in the middle of the road, and he gets out of his car, and he yells at our dog, and he says, what? What now? You caught me. What do you want? Interesting thing. You know, if you're a pet owner, you know that dogs can have facial expressions and the facial expression on the snout of her dog was one of disbelief. He just kind of cowered back behind the fence, sat down and waited for the next car to come. This is what happens when Job demands an audience with God. He is chasing God. He's not happy with the way his life has been going. So he says, God, I want an audience, but he catches God And it's as if he doesn't know what to do now. He cowers. And three things happen. When God shows up in the tornado, the whirlwind, the hurricane, God gives Job one first an argument. He says, okay, I will answer you. Second, there's a time of silence where God doesn't even address the question, the primary question that Job asks. So first he gives an argument. Second, there is silence. And then third, God shows up in this tornado. And we can refer to that as God's terrible yet wonderful storm. So let's go through these. First of all, God shows up and addresses Job's argument. And Job's argument is an old one. Job says basically this. I don't understand how an all-powerful, all-good God would ever allow these atrocities to happen to me. I cannot harmonize what's going on in my life and the world around me with a good and loving God. Now, when God shows up, God's response immediately to that question is this. It's in Job 38, verses 4 through 7. He says to Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, I know many of you have been through this passage with me before, but this is a totally different angle, so please stay with me here. He says, tell me if you have understanding, Job, who determined its measurements? Surely you know who stretched the line upon the earth to what were its foundations fashioned or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Later on in verse 35 of chapter 38, Job says this, or God rather responds to Job by saying, Job, can you send out lightnings that they may go to their designated areas and say to you as the lightning bolts do, here we are. What's he saying? God says to Job, Job, even the lightning bolts report to me before they do what they're supposed to do. Do they report to you, Job? Are you so smart that you know how the world should be going and you can hold it all together? And then in chapter 38, verse 1, we go back. When God begins the dialogue with Job, he starts by saying, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Now, that's an important verse because darken one's counsel means that Job is actually complaining before God and saying, I'm looking at my life, God, and can I just tell you, I think your ways are dark. They are not just, they are unrighteous. And then God responds to Job by saying, Job, you're making this accusation without knowledge. If you were to place your knowledge on a scale and my knowledge on a scale, my knowledge would outweigh your wisdom and knowledge to such a degree that your knowledge would be catapulted into the atmosphere and disintegrate. So Job, you talk about a darkened way of life and a darkened judgment, but you don't have the knowledge or the wisdom that I have to make that discernment or accusation. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, a six-year-old shows up at a rocket launch and finds the physicist and says to the physicist, you know, this rocket's never going to get off the ground. I can just tell you it's too heavy. Not going to happen. How would the physicist respond? Would the physicist sit down and say to the six-year-old, come over here for a moment. Let me sit you down, set you down rather, and explain to you propulsion? No because his mind can't fathom that as a six year old. Now he may tell him to sit down, but he would probably say something like, why don't you just sit down, enjoy your ice cream and enjoy the rocket launch? There is a major problem and it's knowledge. You don't have enough to understand. Do you know the Bible says, that God, this is in Psalm 147, verse four through five, counts the number of stars. He calls them by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. You think about that, really? God counts the stars and calls them by name? We're also told that the heavens, the very heavens declare the glory of God. Do you know that the more advanced we become in science, the more we begin to know and understand about the universe. For instance, we now know that just in our galaxy alone, that's one galaxy, we are now able to catch a glimpse of over 1 trillion stars. 1 trillion stars in one galaxy. There are at least a 100 billion Galaxies visible to our telescopes. But the problem with that is we can only see an infinitesimal part of the entire universe. Do you understand that? One galaxy, one trillion stars, a hundred billion galaxies, and yet we see this much of the entirety of our universe. The ocean, at its deepest point is about seven miles, seven miles. And we are still learning there are creatures in the depths of the ocean that we've not yet discovered. But discoveries are happening almost every day. There are animals even on our planet Earth that we have yet to name and know. There are places on this globe, on Earth, of which we are still unfamiliar there are regions that we have not yet mapped out and explored, and that's just the earth. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus Christ holds everything together by the word of his power in the heavens and on the earth. And so the point of all this is that we have a major knowledge problem. In fact, folks, this has been discussed a lot in the last probably 20 years in philosophy. And even philosophers admit now that this question that we pose to God has a major philosophical issue. We say to God, if God is big enough then and powerful enough to stop all suffering, remember that's Job's complaint, I cannot harmonize the goodness of God, the power of God with everything that's happening, then that is a philosophical issue problem because if you have a God who is strong enough and powerful enough to stop all the pain and suffering in the world that means you also have a God who is big enough to possess knowledge that you and I can't possibly conceive you say I believe in God but I can't see any good reason why he would allow these things to occur and the reason you can't see any good reason is because you're not God And your knowledge is limited. Again, if God is big enough to stop all this, he is big enough to have reasons why he would not. That's a very powerful philosophical argument because God is not merely omnipotent, all powerful. He's also omniscient. He is all knowing. So this accusation becomes really a non sequitur. It's Self-defeating, it's internally contradictory. Because if God is big enough to stop all of this from happening, He's also big enough to have reasons why He would not. One of my favorite authors that I've often referred to is Elizabeth Elliot. I remember sitting under the Christmas tree a few Christmases ago and just reading her two books, uh, through Gates of Splendor and beyond gates of splendor, being captivated by the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who together with Stephen Saint and three others who were at the top of their class. They were incredible entrepreneurs. They were destined for fame and wealth, but heard the call of God to forgo the temporary wealth and invest in what was eternal. And so Jim and Elizabeth Elliot made their way with three other families, four other families actually, into the jungles of South America to take the good news of the gospel to unreached people groups. They actually together established uh, what we know today as modern missions. As Wheaton grads, they came together, they lived their lives. If you know the rest of the story, which I can't go that deeply into, they end up being murdered at the hands of the very people they were trying to reach. Elizabeth Elliot lived on past the days of her husband. She stayed in the jungles of South America. She accomplished so much, and the books that she has written, called "Through Gates of Splendor" and "Beyond Gates of Splendor," were nonfiction. But she also wrote a book called "No Graven Image," and "No Graven Image" is a novel. Now, this is important. Stay with me. The novel talks about a woman who moves to the jungles of South America. She has a promising career. Prospects for marriage, prospects for great wealth. She meets another gentleman who speaks three different languages and they have the same heart. So they move to the jungles of South America. Remember, this is a novel. They serve together for years. They have a great ministry. And then near the end of the book, at that climactic point when everything is going to be pulled together, she accidentally kills him with an injection of bad penicillin. At that point in the novel, the tribe turns against her. Her entire life work is thrown into the river. Everything she has worked for, her entire life is gone. Her entire life at this point becomes a disappointment. And that's how the novel ends. After the publication of this wonderful work, She received hate mail from Christians all over the world and pastors. In fact, the president of the seminary from which she graduated did everything and admitted this later, did everything that he could to keep her book off of all kinds of notable lists. And the reason they gave was this. They said, there's no way God would allow a dedicated servant to experience such a thing. No way would God let an absolutely dedicated servant go through such a disappointment. Elizabeth Elliot in her response said, not only in their theological smugness had they not read the book of Job, but the story that I have written is not really a story of fiction. It is a story of my life. And there's a chilling line at the very end of the book that goes like this. Now in the clear light of day I see that God if he was merely my accomplice had betrayed me. If on the other hand he is God he had freed me. For God is worthy of my worship and my service and I will find rest nowhere but in his will and that will is infinitely unmeasurably unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he may be up to. If God is my accomplice. He's betrayed me. But if he is God, he has freed me. Interesting. Two words there. An accomplice is an assistant, someone who helps me achieve my goals and my objectives. But if he's God, then he uses me for his divine purposes. You know, not too long ago, I was at Dodger Stadium. I was invited by a friend, and I got to play kind of a pickup game of baseball on Dodger Field in the stadium down at the ravine. They assigned third base to me and I can't tell you how many balls came my way and I was quite happy because I had so much joy. It kind of reminded me when I was a boy of of, of fielding this ball that was coming to me at third base. I would pick it up in my glove and throw it over to first. And every time I did it, I just got more joy and more joy reminding me of how fun it is just to pick up a ball and throw it to first base. Do you know the Bible says, that God picks up the constellations like I pick up a ball and scatters them into their places. You think of what kind of God that is. Is that the kind of God that you invite into your life to be your assistant? Your accomplice? Do you realize what God is saying to Job? He's saying, Job, do you really want peace in the midst of all this? Then you need a God-sized God. Take a deep breath and chill. I got this. Enjoy. The reality that you don't have to worry about how all this works together and keeping the universe held together and accomplishing goodness. I got this, Job. So God comes to Job, first of all, and addresses his argument. And he says, basically, Job, your assumptions are faulty. Because if I even tried to explain this to you, Job, you probably wouldn't get it. The mind of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, you need to admit Job is far beyond yours. But there's a second thing that happens and it's a silence. This bothered me for years because God never seems to address Job's major concern. And Job's major concern is, God, I need vindication. I need proof. And I need an audience with you so you can explain to me why all this is happening. I've tried to be a righteous and blameless man. Why is this happening? But God mentions none of this to Job, never addresses it. You and I know why it's happening, but Job doesn't. We know there is an upper story in play here that God is having a dialogue with Satan. And Satan's accusation is this. Yeah, sure, God, Job loves you, but he doesn't love you for you. He loves you for all the things he gets from you. I mean, my goodness, God, you've blessed the hound out of him. Remove those blessings. Stop making everything go so well in his life. And I I tell you, he won't love or serve you. Remove these blessings and he'll run away from you so fast. And he'll be exposed as the fraud that he is. He serves you, but not for you. He serves you for himself. Now, I want to pause here and think about two things for a moment. Why is it that we in the West struggle so much with the book of Job? You know, before 1950, commentaries written on the book of Job took an entirely different angle. I can tell you that from living a great portion of my life on the continent of Africa, that the African Christian views the book of Job entirely different to what we view it or how we view it. We think, wow, how dare God allow Satan to do this to his servant Job? There's a part of us that wants vindication. But my African brothers and sisters, committed in their faith, they don't view the book of Job in that light. They come at it from the perspective of, wait a minute. Job, everything he had been given was a blessing from God. It never really belonged to him, including his health. So God has every right to take back what belongs to him and use it for his purpose. You and I in the West have become so used to having what we think we deserve that when God removes something from us, we're angry at God. How dare you? I've earned this. It belongs to me. And so we approach the book of Job from an entirely different point of view. The second thing is, that if you notice in the book, God only gives Satan enough rope regarding the life of Job to hang himself. Again, God only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. He only allows enough suffering into Job's life that will make Job's name a household name. Today, Job has a name that will never die. Millions of people through the age of ages have been comforted and inspired by the faith And the endurance of Job. Job shows us that even though your friends let you down, even though your spouse may turn against you, even though you may lose the love or the reality of your children, in the end, God always delivers. You and I know the why behind Job's problems. But when God shows up to speak with Job, he doesn't tell him. He doesn't tell him what you and I know. And the reason is, He can't. Because if God tells Job the reason for his suffering is that he's going to become a great man one day, an inspiration for generations to come, his name will live forever, then Job cannot become a great man whose name will live forever. He can't.
1: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
0: It is wrong not to love God for who He is. Instead, Many of us love Him for what we think He will give us. The only way you will ever learn to love God for Himself and not His benefits is when your life doesn't go the way you think it ought to be going. And you don't know why, and yet you don't pick up the crucifix and throw it into the fire. Instead, you pray that the fire will refine you.
1: You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts.